The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Peter is writing, some of us will experience great persecution because of our faith. For several weeks now, we've been looking at the importance of living holy, clean, godly lives. How many believe that no matter where the world goes and their ways of living, that we are called still to live godly lives? Amen? Just because the world gets darker and darker doesn't mean that we follow their trend. The standards that were true 50 years ago for Christians are still the same for us today. So there's a couple reasons that the Bible calls us to live holy, godly lives. Number one, we serve a holy God. How many believe that? Amen. And so we're to worship Him in the beauty of His holiness. And we're to honor Him by living godly lives. But secondly, we've been reminded through this letter that not only is God watching us, not only does the Lord see the way in which we live, but friends, people are watching us. The world is watching us, and we need to live our lives in such a way, we need to behave in such a way that points people to the glory and the beauty of Christ. Are you with me? And so now, verse 13, dovetails off this thought. Here it is. Peter writes, Now, who is there to harm you? If you are a zealous for what is good. Here's very simply what he's saying. You remember last week we talked about in the previous verses that, that we are to be kind-hearted people. We're to be loving, tender-hearted. We're to love one another and we are to love even our enemies. And we're to treat them with kindness. And we're to be generous and magnanimous and loving towards them. Quick to forgive. And here's what Peter says, generally when you are kind and generous and loving towards other people, you will be treated well. People normally will not mess with you even if they disagree with your faith. Jonathan Haidt is a professor of social psychology at New York University's Stern School of Business. And he, for many years, was very opposed to Christianity, seeing it kind of as the enemy. It's very interesting, though. Just recently, he gave a presentation. Get this. He's an atheist. And he gave a, a presentation at the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities Conference. And he talked about how his mind has been changed regarding Christianity. Not enough to convert him but enough to drop his hostility towards Christians. And I, I want you to get this. Here's what's so amazing. This change came in large part from the influence of some of his students who were evangelical Christians when he taught at the University of Virginia years ago. And he said that growing up in New York and then going to Ivy League schools that he had never been around open evangelical Christians before. And here's what he said. He said, quote, these students radiated a kind of sweetness, a kind of warmth and gentleness and humility that I hadn't seen before. 
He said it was really lovely. He then went on to say that that same warmth and openness and love that he experienced there, he found in many other Christian churches that he visited as part of a class on moral communities. This absolutely changed him. And though he is still an atheist, he has become a friend to the Christian community. And so this is Peter's point. Generally, when you generally, when you demonstrate Christian values, when you serve other people, when you are loving towards others, when you live a clean life, people will be good to you, or at least indifferent to you. However, Peter goes on to say this, that that is not always the case. It's not always you reap what you sow when it comes to this. There are times, he says, that you will be mistreated even when you've done good. You will, what he says, suffer for righteousness sake. There are some people, how many know, that are militant against Christianity. And they will hate you just because you are a Christian, even if you bend over backwards to them. They'll be against you. Some of you may know that I have a, uh, in addition to pastoring, I have a, a business. It's a, a digital marketing company. And we build websites and, and do all kinds of digital marketing. And a few weeks ago, I, I built um, what I think is a, an incredible website. Um, if I don't say so myself, for, for this, uh, I sounded a little braggadocious, sorry. But um, this is why I stick to my notes, right? Um, but, but I built this website, and I just worked really, really hard on it. I, this company needed it ASAP, and so I, I, man, I stayed up night after night, worked till 8.30, 9 o'clock at night to get this website done. Matter of fact, I, I stayed up to 8.30, 9 at night working while I'm preaching about taking time for your family, if you remember a few weeks ago, right? So I'm being kind of hypocritical in this, but, but I, I worked really hard to bless this company. The site turned out great. They were really pleased. But then I went to a friend of mine. Um, I was with him just maybe last week, and he was telling me that this company, this one of the owners was slamming me for something that didn't even have anything to do with my company. And my heart just sank because I had worked so hard to bless them. And isn't it frustrating? We've all been here. Isn't it frustrating to get hurt by people that you've been so good to? Have you ever felt that? With Christianity, if it hasn't happened to you yet, this will happen. How many know you have a real adversary the devil, right? Who's out to get you. And, and, and not only that, but because the devil's against you, his people are against you, right? You have a dark world who is against you. And so non-believers, as we see, is the case even in our country now, they're growing daily more militant and hostile towards Christianity. So here's our main thought for the day. On the back of your notes or your bulletins, you can take notes this morning says, here's our main thought. The Bible calls us to live holy lives. And sometimes holiness is met with great hostility. We need to be prepared for, for this because sometimes your holiness will be met with great hostility. So I'm going to give you out of these verses quickly 
four principles for facing hostility. Particularly when you're suffering for righteousness sake, for the sake of Christ. Four principles for facing hostility. Number one, when you suffer for the name of Jesus, embrace the honor. Embrace the honor. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, watch what Peter says. You will be blessed. We talked about this last week. How many want to live the blessed life? We think of the blessed life being comfort and perfection, right? Where people just leave us alone. But Peter says, actually, you want to be blessed? Be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. Scholars tell us that the word blessed here emphasizes the privilege or the honor that comes with suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now, let me give you another example of this in the Bible, the way this word is used. When Mary was found to be with child, you might remember her family member, the mother of John the Baptist, said to her, Blessed are you among women. Luke 1.42 Blessed are you among women. But then you flip one chapter, you go to Luke 2 and you find these words. That Mary's heart would be pierced with many sorrows. So which is it? Are you going to be blessed or are you going to be pierced with sorrows, Mary? And the answer is yes. Isn't that, doesn't that sum up the Christian life? We are blessed, but yes, at times we are pierced with many sorrows. How many know what I'm talking about? So what Peter is saying is that just like Mary, listen, Mary, you, you're blessed, you're honored to bear Jesus Christ, to give birth to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the world. But because of this very thing, you're going to also be pierced with many sorrows. This is what Peter is saying. He's not saying that when you suffer for righteousness sake, that you need to be chipper and it's just going to be, whoa, this is fun. No, it's going to hurt. It's going to sting when you suffer as a Christian. But at the same time, you are blessed because it is a great honor. It is a great privilege to be counted worthy enough to suffer for the name of Jesus. Embrace the honor. Last week we commemorated the brave men and women who paid the ultimate price so I could stand here and preach today so we could experience the freedoms of this country. We don't take their sacrifice lightly. And though their deaths were tragic, many of those men and women who died so bravely, you know what? They died with great honor, counting it privilege to give their lives for the country that they so loved. And that's how we need to look at this as Christians. Though many of us will not die for our faith in this company or the country. Though, that, though we may never die because of our faith. We will be persecuted and we need to count it a great honor. According to Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says he counted it a great honor to know Christ. Watch this. Both in the power of his resurrection. And that will preach. Amen. Oh, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Come on, somebody. We, I've heard so many messages preached on that. But 
is taken out of context with the balance of what Paul is saying. Oh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So you're quiet on that part. Paul is a man who suffered greatly, immensely, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And all he counted it a privilege. And it is indeed a great honor. Embrace it. So when you're facing hostility owing to your faith, friend, embrace it. It's an honor. Number two, second principle. When you are facing hostility for your faith, treasure Jesus Christ above all things. Have you heard me say this once or twice? The second part of verse 14. Have no fear of them. Talking about those who are hostile towards you. Nor be troubled. In the second part here of verse 14. Peter is alluding to the Old Testament. To the book of Isaiah chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. And let me just give you a little bit of historical context. As to what's happening there in the book of Isaiah. In this passage, Ahaz, who is king of Judah, had allied with the wicked people of Assyria because he was in fear for his people. He was in fear of being overtaken. So instead of trusting the Lord, he just decided to take matters into his own hands and kind of be friends with the enemy. This was a tragic decision because God rebukes this alliance and he assures the prophet Isaiah that the people of Judah are not to fear what other men fear. They're not to, 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 to make an ally of the enemy. They're not to be friends with the enemy. No, they should fear the Lord and trust the Lord. And you know what Peter is saying here is that is the temptation for all of us. When we feel like misfits, when we are being persecuted, the great temptation is to retreat. To do whatever it takes to make our lives comfortable again. To not be uh, as bold with our faith. And Peter's saying, no, don't fear what other people fear. Trust the Lord. Fear the Lord, not man. If God be for you, who can be against you? Then in verse 15, he says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter is saying, in order to stay disciplined in your Christian life, when you're facing persecution or hostility, he's saying you must treasure Jesus above all things. Because if He is not the love of your life, if He is not your first love, if your love for Him has grown cold, you will not stand when times get tough. You'll do whatever you can do to make your life comfortable again because you value comfort more than you value Christ. And that's a tragedy. Persecution, as a matter of fact, is a great test to kind of gauge how spiritual you really are. In the valley, are you still singing His praise? Are you still willing to obey Him? Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How many know the Apostle Paul treasured Jesus Christ above all things? 
And friends, he lost a lot according to the world standards. But he said, hey, it's all rubbish. It's all dumb. It's nothing to me in comparison to what I've gained in Christ. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. A real follower of Jesus who treasures Christ above all things. Friends, that person, that man or woman of God can stand strong even in the face of great persecution or adversity. The next principle to stand strong in the midst of hostility is this. You've got to be ready to defend the faith. Be ready to defend the the faith. Look at verse 15, the second part. Always be prepared. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Now the Greek word here for defense is the word apologia and it is from which we derive, we derive two different English words from this. Apology, and you probably guessed this one, apologetics. And so it's used many times in Scripture, both formally and more informally. In a formal sense, it is used to talk about a judicial courtroom, such as in 2 Timothy 4.16, and then often it's used in a more informal way. So Peter is saying this, that we need to be ready, formally and informally, to be able to give an account for our faith. To be able to, to, to defend our faith. Because when you willingly suffer for Christ, people are going to ask you, why in the world? Why don't you just keep your faith to yourself? Like, Why do you want to go through this? Why are you doing this to yourself? You need to be able to give them an answer. You don't need to go, hmm. Well, that'll win somebody to Christ. There's an alarming study that was done in 2018. It was, there was a partnership between Ligonier Ministries and uh, Lifeway. And they wanted to see kind of what Americans in general thought about the Bible and God and salvation. And then uh, particularly they, they had some questions that were just asked to um, evangelical Christians. And it's just an alarming study. Get this, in 2018, 51%, so the majority of evangelical Christians who were surveyed believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51%. As long as you're worshiping God, it doesn't matter. Well, the last time I checked, my Bible says that Jesus is not a way, but He is the way. Right. Help me somebody. Right. He is not a way to the Father. He's not just one option. No, he, friends, He is the way. If you don't go through Christ, if you, don't, if you don't have faith in Christ, you don't get God the Father. There's one way to heaven. There's one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ, God the Son. 32% of evangelicals said that their religious beliefs, watch this, are not objectively true. Okay, here's what you believe. You believe you're, you're a Christian. You believe in these tenets of faith. 
Are those objectively true? And 32% of evangelical Christians say no. This is subjective truth. This is relativism, right? This is, this is my truth. You have your truth. These are Christians. I use that term loosely. Alright? Suffice to say that there is great confusion within the church. By the way, let me just take a little rabbit trail for just a moment and say, this is why it is so important that you are in a church that preaches the Bible. You don't need a motivational service or sermon on Sunday morning. You don't need just a motivational speech. You need to hear the Word of God. I make no apologies for you know we ever going to get out of First Peter. We're teaching verse by verse by verse because I'm told I'm the priest, the whole counsel of God. Because the tendency when you just when you just hop around and there's nothing wrong. I mean I, I preach standalone messages, but they're still from the Bible. The tendency is that we pick the, the scriptures that are easy or the scriptures that we want to teach. But when you go verse by verse to a book of the Bible, you got to preach the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? The difficult passages, the easy passages, the ones that step on your toes a little bit, the ones that make you feel good. Like, we need to know the counsel of God. So, I want you to know you're in a church that is committed to biblical truth. You can go find a probably more eloquent preacher. Don't say anything to that. Uh, you, can, you can find somebody who can draw larger crowds. I don't make any apologies. We stand by the Bible in this church. It's still relevant today. If we don't have the Bible, we, don't, we might as well not be the church. We need the Word of God and we need to understand, not just watch this, what we believe, but we need to know why we believe it. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. But believers at minimum need to be prepared, at least watch this, to be able to articulate and defend what we call the gospel. Many Christians today, if I were to say, articulate the gospel for me, they can't do it. That's, the, that's Christianity 101. You get the gospel wrong, you get Christianity wrong. So we need to be able to point other people to the gospel. We need to be able to, to, to let people understand why we so love the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why that is our hope. Why Christ is our hope. Why we cannot be saved by our works, by being a good person. That our only hope is to be saved um, by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. We need to be able to articulate that and defend our hope. Because when you're being pressured and you don't know how you believe, what you believe, that person persecuting you may be able to talk you out of what you thought you believed. Those of you who have teenagers or preteens in here, take time and teach them apologetics. There's some great books up, out there that you all can learn together. Because when they walk into to a, onto a secular campus, their faith will be challenged. Has anybody been there? And so many of our students in the evangelical church are falling away uh, toward, around the college ages because they don't know why they believe. They just would, if you ask them, they say, well, this is just what my mama always said. And then some smart, knowledgeable professor knows what they're supposed to believe more than they know and he knows how to talk them out of it. We're trying to raise up 
children from a young age. This is why we do the catechism. Okay, this is why we do question and answers every week so they know doctrine. When they get to high school in this church, if you'll stick with us, listen, they're going to learn apologetics with Joe and Stephanie. They're going to know how to defend the faith when they go on to Chi Alpha with Ben and Dina. They're going to, they're going to have a great understanding of not just what they believe, but why they believe it. It's important. So we've got to be able to de defend the faith. And before I move on, let me say one more thing. Peter says we've got to defend it with gentleness and respect. Which means on your first day of college, don't pull up a sign and, and pick it and say, hey, repent or burn. <laughs> I don't know why nobody wants to come to Chi Alpha, right? Like, like uh, Pastor Ben, we were evangelizing. <laughs> Go around burning people with lighters and say, like, if you like that, that's what eternity is going to be for you. <laughs> that is not effective evangelism. And I see pastors not doing that, but... They might as well be. They're mean and crude. You know, one of the reasons I love Tim Keller so much is because in, in New York City, he has been able to reach thousands of atheists and agnostics. You know why? Because he preaches the truth with gentleness and respect. And when he finds out somebody's a Muslim or they're a Hindu or whatever it is, he doesn't say, well... It's going to be hot for you for all of eternity. He listens to what they have to say. He takes them to coffee. He has conversations. He takes time to understand their worldview. Many of our Christians, they don't, they don't care what anybody else believes. Friends, we need to understand other people's perspectives, their worldviews, if we're ever going to reach them. And so he has these conversations with them. And yes, he, he preaches the gospel, he preaches the truth, but he does it with gentleness and respect. And ended up, before he retired, planting a church in New York City. And when he left, there were over 10,000 people in attendance every Sunday morning. And he didn't do it with the smoke and lights and all of the fluff. He did it with the gospel. Did it with the gospel. Incredible. So you've got to be able to defend the faith in the midst of hostility. Finally, number four. Zach, you can come. We are to keep a pure conscience. If you want to stand strong in the face of hostility, you have got to be able to keep a pure conscience. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Commentator Warren Worsby defines the conscience as that internal judge that witnesses to us, that enables us to know whether our actions are approved or they are wrong. But don't miss this. Listen to me. Your conscience can be misleading. Here's why. Your conscience is like a skylight, not a lamp. In other words, it is not the source of light, but it allows the light to come in. When I was growing up, my grandparents lived in Georgetown on South Hamilton in a house that was built in the 1800s. And my, if I have a goal in life, it's a little bit materialistic. 
it would be to one day have that house because I have such great memories. I just loved it. And every week, my, my grandfather took such great care of it. And if you know, if you have an old house, how many of us have a lot of work? Every single week, this house had the 12-foot ceilings, those, those uh, windows that went about from the floor to the ceiling. You know what I'm talking about? Beautiful. That's a lot of upkeep. There had to be 30 or more windows in this house. It's huge. Every week, my grandfather would take his ladder outside. He'd first wash the inside of the windows, and then he'd go outside in this two-story house. Three, if you count the attic. It had a window up there, too. He would wash every single window by hand every week. And it was just beautiful because... It was like the, the sunlight would come and he, he made stained glass. So you have the stained glass, just the beautiful stained glass, the sun coming through it. And then you'd have these huge windows and just unfiltered sunlight coming. It's just beautiful. The windows were sparkling. You could just clearly see all the time what was outside. And you know, being a homeowner now, I realize how much work that is. Because it doesn't take long if you clean your windows. And we know they get smudged up pretty fast. They get dust on them, whatever. And it's kind of like that with our conscience. This is why every day you need to be in the Word of God. Because your conscience is not the source of light. It's the skylight. And every time you open the Word of God, it is like, it is like washing the window. Washing the conscience. So that you can clearly hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that you can clearly be reminded of the Word of God. Every time, watch this, every time, every little decision that you make that is against the Word of God, you may call it a little sin. You know what happens? That conscience, that skylight gets a little smudged, gets a little dirtier, and so the light can't pierce through. It can't, it can't come through. It can't break through the dirt and the grime that you're allowing to build up. And if you're not confessing your sins, if you're continuing to go your own way, what happens? The voice of God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller in your life. Peter says, you need to keep that window clean. You need to keep your conscience clean because uh, Titus 1.15 says it is possible to have a defiled conscience. When you are standing in the midst of great hostility, here's the benefit of having a pure conscience. You can stand before those who hate you and despise you, and you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding, because if God be for me, who can be against me? I can stand in the, in the, in the, in the, in the face of my accusers and say, Oh, I have a peace in my heart. Because I know in whom I believe, I know that I have served the Lord. And even if this world takes my very life, if they take everything from me, they cannot take my faith. And I have a pure conscience before God. I know whom I serve. And I know He'll never leave me. I know He'll never forsake me. And even if I die, that's because of my faith. I know that even that's not the end for me. Oh, I'll hear in 1999, a man by the name of Graham Staines and his two sons, ages 10 and 6, 
They were trapped in a, their vehicle and burned alive by radical Hindus in India. Their charred bodies were found clinging to one another. Graham had spent 34 years serving the people of India in the name of Jesus. And his goodness was met with hostility. Graham left behind his wife Gladys, his daughter Esther, who was 13 years old at the time. Gladys' response, his wife's response to this tragedy was to the glory of Christ printed all across newspapers throughout India. And I want you to hear her words. She wrote, she said, quote, I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter. Neither am I angry. But I have one great desire that each citizen of the country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. End quote. And instead of going back to Australia where she was from, Gladys decided to stay with Esther in India. She said, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy people. And perhaps most remarkable of all, listen to the response of her daughter. Her daughter Esther, 13 years old at the time, was asked how she felt about the murder of her father and brothers. She said... I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. Most of us will not experience this type of persecution because of our faith in this country. But we will face persecution. You will be hated if you live for Christ. Because people of darkness hate the light because it exposes sin. John tells us. People are going to be against you. You're probably at some point, if you live out your faith, you may be overlooked for the promotion. You may lose a job. You may be laughed at. You may be lied about. You may be physically hurt. We will all experience some level of persecution if we're truly living for Christ. And may real life community church, may we count it an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. Because He suffered for us. We have a Lord who sympathizes with us in our suffering. The one who came to seek and save that which was lost. Live the perfect life, a life filled with love and compassion. The one who healed the sick, raised the dead, saved the lost, fed the hungry, ultimately crucified because the darkness hated the light. He died for righteousness' sake. And now Paul and Peter and the whole of the New Testament would say, Oh, are you suffering because of wicked people for your faith? Don't retaliate. 
Shame them by your good behavior so that they may be pointed to Christ. They may be brought to their knees. Cling to Jesus. Embrace the honor of suffering. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. This is not in my notes, but the Lord laid this on my heart in the first service. You will remember in Acts chapter 1, if you've been in church any time, the Lord, Christian, you can go ahead and come. The Lord, before He ascended, after His resurrection, before He ascended and went to the Father, here's what He said. He told His disciples, I want you to wait on the promise of the Father. Talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But Jesus talks about this endowment with power. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Book of Ephesians, Paul writes, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And we've, we've missed this in the church. Because we've made what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We've made it weird. And we've made it about just quote unquote having church. That's not what it's for. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, He said, you will be my witnesses. We see this. You may remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter, uh, Peter and John, they had just, um, in the name of Jesus, healed somebody, this lame man on the temple stairs. He was miraculously healed. This caused a crowd of people to come around. They shared the gospel. A bunch of people get saved. And the religious folks don't like it. The Sanhedrin bring them before the people and they say, listen, you are not the preacher teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, they just say, listen, we can't help to preach what we know. This message is in us. It's, you, you, we just can't shut up about it. And here's what they do. They get together with their friends and they have a prayer meeting. And they're not praying for some just spiritual experience. You know what they pray? Lord, give us a boldness to keep preaching the gospel in the face of this adversity. And you know what happens? There's an earthquake. The Holy Spirit comes. And by the way, these are the, many of the men who were in Pentecost. They received the baptism. And again, they are in doom with power. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, they are, and then the Bible just says they continue to preach the word of God boldly. Here's what I want to pray today. I want to pray that the Lord would baptize us afresh in His Spirit. That He would endue us with power. So that, so that we can be His witnesses in Richmond and all of Kentucky and all of the U.S. and to the uttermost parts of the earth. How many want that? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.